the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy. How you doing, Darcy? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you? I have been better. <laughs> I'm so yeah. hungry right now. I'm doing a five-day <laughs> fast. Oh. Because I felt like my mom just left, and like we ate, just ate and drank and just kind of went a little bit overboard, a little bit excessive. Yeah. You know, whenever mom comes into town, she cooks up a storm, and yeah. I ate a little bit too much and just felt really gross and ugh, So you're bloated. doing, like, a cleanse. You're not doing, like, you're it's not a cleanse. Fa- like, fasting yeah. for it's eight like days. A, you're not eating real food, but you are doing, like, juice and minerals and vitamins okay. and electrolytes and water and all kinds of other things to try to flush your body out. Well, be careful. Oh yeah, I'm. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything except doing my normal work, which is remote anyway. So I'm not exercising. Yeah. I'm not doing anything crazy. But I am having lots of electrolytes to keep the body replenished and whatnot. Um, I yeah. feel pretty good. I mean, I'm hungry, and everything sounds delicious right now. Everything except <laughs> bologna sandwiches. Bologna sandwiches will right? never Oof. ever sound delicious to me. No. Um, we talked about that in the last case we recorded. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, let's kind of jump into some of the, the stuff that's going on today. I found a, some interesting stuff to talk about on the show. Um, okay. Did you hear about this Benadryl overdose story? So I've heard about it. I haven't gotten too deep into it. Let's kind of talk about it. There was an article about it on the Daily yeah. Beast. Uh, Pilar Melendez wrote it, and this just came out this week. Just before the COVID-19 pandemic pummeled the country, her brother Anthony Todd was arrested for murdering his wife, their three children, and the family dog, and letting their bodies rot inside a three-story rental home on the outskirts of Disney World, which is another reason why I thought this was interesting, because I've been to this area many times. But the arrest came after Ball said she and her other relatives had asked the Osceola Sheriff's Department several times to check on her brother's home in Celebration, Florida, where the family fell off the grid. It was on January 13, 2020, as Ball was out for dinner with her husband for his birthday, that she said she got a message about the death investigation that has since plagued her and her loved ones. We have a million questions about what happened that day, and we don't even have access to information because we're not victims, says Ball, a 45-year-old administrative assistant. All we want to know is what happened to our family. Anthony Todd's trial, set to begin with jury selection on Monday, which is this, this week, offers the prospect of some insight into how a physical therapist accused of fraud allegedly snapped, poisoned his family with allergy medication, and stabbed three of them. In some ways, the case may seem open and shut. After all, the authorities say Todd has issued not one or two, but three separate murder confessions, in which he admitted to the quadruple homicide, though the details of of his confession have been kept under wraps. Mm -hmm. But one of these admissions was thrown out by a judge because the 45-year-old defendant was not properly read his Miranda rights. Whoops. And given Todd's subsequent insistence that his wife was the one who decided to murder their children Mm -hmm. and stab herself, many of those closest to the man remain utterly flabbergasted about what may come next. I'm anxious about the trial, but anxious to finally get answers. Not really the outcome, Ball said. I'm just ready to hear some actual evidence. Todd originally from Connecticut, has pleaded not guilty to all counts, including homicide and animal cruelty, after previously admitting to killing his wife, Megan, 13-year-old Alec, 11-year-old Tyler, 4-year-old Zoe, and the family dog, Breezy, inside their rented home. While he was taken into custody on January 13, 2020, authorities believe his family was killed sometime toward the end of December, 
suggesting they had been allowed to deteriorate for a matter of weeks. And he's still living in this home, mind you. Orange Osceola Public Defender Robert Wesley, who was representing Todd, mm -hmm. declined the Daily Beast's request mm -hmm. for comment. Court records reviewed by the Daily Beast indicate that family members last saw Todd November 20th, 2019 in Connecticut. The final meeting came the day after Todd met with federal authorities about an investigation into his physical therapy business, an encounter in which authorities say he admitted to stealing thousands of dollars from Medicaid and private insurers by way of fraud. High school sweethearts, Todd and his wife had moved their family down to Florida a few years prior, but the physical therapist still commuted back and forth to Connecticut to maintain his business, which I thought was interesting. But during his final trip to the Constitution State, Ball told the Daily Beast her brother was alone, but she did not notice anything particularly out of the ordinary. Prosecutors say Todd's family grew worried about the family of five just after Christmas and repeatedly asked the Osceola Sheriff's deputies to perform a wellness check on the rental home at Reserve Place. At one point, an FBI agent who had been investigating Todd's Connecticut business also grew concerned and likewise asked the Florida Sheriff's Office to locate the physical therapist. I'm wondering if someone could do a wellness check on my brother and his family, said Chrissy Caplett, another of Todd's hmm. sisters. She said that this happened December 29, 2020, when she called the Osceola County Sheriff's Office. Ball said that one of her biggest frustrations with, was her conviction that the local authorities did not seem to take her and her family's worry about the Todds seriously at first. If someone could have gone in on the 29th, would things have been different, she said? Ball, who has known Megan, who's the, the wife that passed away since middle school, asked in an interview, we were not taken seriously every mm. time we called. The Osceola Sheriff's Office did not respond to the Daily Beast's request for comment. Larry Gula, one of Megan's uncles, told the Daily Beast that he last spoke to his niece at the end of December, or right around the time of her death. He said the mother of three had been super excited to move to the Orlando area and believed it was going to be fun for everyone. The last thing I said to her was to stay safe. She was the apple of my eye. Also a physical therapist at her husband's Connecticut practice, Megan had been described by friends and family as a loving person whose true calling was to be a mother. Neighbors in Celebration previously told the Daily Beast that Megan was homeschooling her three kids while her husband commuted back and forth to Connecticut. So clearly she had stopped being a physical therapist when she had her kids, right? She adored her children. That's what makes this all the much more heartbreaking, Lori Layton, one of the neighbors, told the Daily Beast mm. in January. Ultimately, it took federal agents and deputies entering the home to exercise an arrest warrant for his alleged financial crimes on January 13th for police to get in contact with Todd. He was holding onto the railings of the second floor of the residence, attempting to walk down the stairway, according to an arrest affidavit. When asked about where his missing family was located, police say Anthony then advised that his children might be at a friend's house for a sleepover, but his wife Megan was sleeping upstairs. Anthony then yelled out, Megan, but received no response. During a search of the home, deputies found the heavily decomposed bodies of Megan, the 13-year-old Alex, 11-year-old Tyler, and 4-year-old Zoe in the upstairs master bedroom. All of them were covered in blankets. This kind of reminds me of the case with the, um, the gentleman, what's his name, John List. Circuit Judge Keith Kartz ruled that jurors would be allowed to see graphic photographs of the bodies at trial, which can you imagine no. being a juror in that and having to see that and how much that would scar you for life? 
Um, the Orange Osceola County Medical Examiner's Office would later conclude the four were killed by unspecified violence combined with overdoses of Benadryl and all but the four-year-old had sustained stab wounds. Mm. The report noted that Megan was stabbed twice in the stomach. The boys both sustained a single wound to the abdomen. So I presume that he drugged them, and when they were unable to kind of resist, he stabbed them to kind right. of finish the job, right? But the authorities have not given any public indication of what weapon may have been used. An arrest affidavit noted that Anthony could barely stand and appeared to be shaking during the grisly discovery, telling police he consumed Benadryl in an attempt to die by suicide. I was going to say, yeah, didn't he also take an overdose of Benadryl? Well, obviously not an overdose because he's still alive. Well, um, it's an overdose, but it didn't. Later, Todd would confess to killing his family in three police interviews. Ball said when she found out about the investigation, not from police, but by way of news and messages from other people. So imagine that. You're fi you find out your family members passed away, not by authorities, but by just the news. Wow. Her first reaction was to believe it was about some other family. Honestly, sure. we're still waiting for them to contact us to tell us that our family is dead. One celebration neighbor who wished to remain anonymous for fear of professional repercussions told the Daily Beast the community was still desperate for answers. To think that something horrific was going on inside that house and nobody had any idea and was walking past unaware is just devastating. Again, this is like the Turpins. Like, you don't have any idea what's going on in that house. They're keeping the curtains closed and they're quiet. Then you, you would never know. Mm -hmm. The neighborhood in the Orlando Enclave originally was designed and built by the Walt Disney Company as the community of tomorrow. They said, had we known something was wrong, we would have helped immediately. Six months after admitting it all, Todd completely changed the story, telling his father an explosive 2020 prison letter that was actually his 42-year-old wife who used tainted Benadryl pudding pie to kill their children. Todd also claimed in the letter that after Megan had confessed to killing the kid, she drank a bottle of family-sized Benadryl and stabbed herself in the stomach. No one stabs himself in the stomach, just FYI. Todd's father, Robert Todd, could not be reached for comment. Long story short, she gave them Benadryl, Tylenol, PM pie, separated them, woke up at 11.30 p.m., stabbed them, and then suffocated each one, Todd wrote in the letter. At the news of this, I ran to the bathroom and puked. I was weak. I still love my wife very deeply, and it would be the hardest thing to sit there and tell everyone that it was her that did this when I was not home, and then she died by suicide in front of me, he wrote. Ball, who's the sibling, declined to comment on Todd's note or his state of mind heading into the trial and would not say whether she believed her brother was guilty, but did confirm that he continued to send her family letters. We will never know what happened inside of that home because the only person that was mm. in that house is him. We'll never know. For me, I just want to know directly from the court what facts they have mm. so we can finally feel some peace. Donald Jones, a law professor at the University of Miami, told the Daily Beast it would be in Todd's interest for his attorneys not to use the letter in their defense strategy, really. If I was his lawyer, I would try to keep that letter out. I think that letter could hurt him. It sounds self-serving. Yeah, seriously. I would not make that argument at all because I don't mm. think, to put it simply, it's a good look for him. Meanwhile, the confessions loom, even if they've been muddied over time. Last month, the judge ruled that the first of Todd's three confessions in the hospital must be excluded from the trial after detectives failed to fully inform him of his constitutional rights. In previous motions, Todd's defense attorneys also claimed the father of three told police during the initial interview that his head was spinning a little and he was in a fog right now. So the Miranda warnings recorded on the audio tape were inadequate and incomplete, according to the ruling, regardless of Todd's apparent lack of hesitation to speak with the detectives and their lack of coercion or promise, Todd's waiver of his Miranda protection cannot be found to be knowing and voluntary as he was not afforded a full and complete advisement of his rights. Two 
subsequent confessions, however, have been deemed mm. legally sound after Todd was read his full Miranda rights. Why does this guy confess three separate times? Seriously, what, what the heck is wrong with him? His defense team argued in, in pretrial motions that at least one of the confessions should be deemed inadmissible because their client was suicidal and dealing with a Benadryl overdose. Um, yeah, but you still have the two other ones. <laughs> right. Um, the attorney noted that Todd's defense is desperately trying to suppress the confessions because it's their only chance of an acquittal in this case. If two of the confessions are in fact allowed in court, the former prosecutor noted that Todd's team might try to re-litigate the Miranda issues on appeal after seemingly inevitable conviction. Mm -hmm. Carson, the judge, also ruled that neither the federal health care fraud investigation, which was dismissed last February, nor his mental health after his arrest can be mentioned during the trial, which that's big. Yeah. Um, the attorney argued there's no way jurors would be swayed by Todd's claim that his wife was the true murderer, and since the defense has already said they're not using the insanity argument, the former prosecutor struggled to see any outcome but conviction. He confessed, and the subsequent confessions were coming in as evidence. His jailhouse writings are completely inconsistent with the confession, and they are factually inconsistent. Todd is incredibly arguing that his wife killed their children and dog and then died by suicide in a very painful way by stabbing herself. Multiple times. Right? But even with the mind, even with the hopeful mindset of getting some justice for Megan and her three children, her uncle was bracing for the trial to, quote, really bring back a lot of painful memories. Yeah. It's going to hurt, period. I mean, wow. Benadryl pie? I mean... Benadryl pie. I, I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I know it comes in liquid form. Um, it's usually ch like children's dose Benadryl that comes in liquid form. Um, so I imagine that for an adult to overdose on it, it would have to be a considerable amount. But yeah, which is why I think he stabbed right. them because it's going to be really, really hard, especially when you mix it with pie, right? Because you're diluting it. Um, I mean, I don't know that you really are dilute. Like you would just. I just want to know how much he used. Was it like seven bottles? Was it like ten? Yeah, I, that's. A th I don't know. I don't know the therapeutic versus lethal doses of, of Benadryl. I would just never think of Benadryl as a way to kill somebody. And I've never, well, that's why this case jumped out at me because I'd never heard of anybody trying to kill somebody with Benadryl. Well, but you've heard of like Tylenol PM and stuff, right? No, I've heard of the, that. Yes, I've heard of it as a medicine, but I've never heard of somebody using that to overdose. Oh, see, I have. So the, the active ingredient, ingredient in Benadryl and Tylenol PM and all of those like over-the-counter sleep medicines is all Benadryl. That's just what it is. Yeah, but... I've never heard of any case of somebody using it. I've heard of aspirin. I've heard of, like, Vicodin. I've heard of harder drugs. I've heard of, yeah. um, like, morphine. I've heard of, right. you know, cocaine. I've heard of, you know, all kinds of other things, but I've never heard of Benadryl being yeah. used for that purpose. I mean, it's pretty unusual. I have. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things that is easier to get your hands on, but it takes, obviously, a lot, a lot, a lot. And for them, to, for him to step in then and also say, oh, she did this all. I watched her and she confessed to me. I mean, come on. Right. Come on. Right. No one believes this guy for a hot minute. Right. And usually, like, if they're trying to use the case of, no, it was my spouse who did it, it's usually like, and then I killed my spouse in self-defense or out of rage that they killed the children. Like, it's not like... She did this, and then she died by suicide right in front of me. Like, that's not usually how no. that story And why didn't you grab the knife from her? Like, really? You're a grown right. man. Um, the other thing I want to know is why. 
what's the motivation for this? Like he was afraid he was going to be convicted for the fraud case and he was his whole life was going to crumble. I want to know why. Yeah, I don't know if it's like a jobless thing or not. It's interesting. And yeah. is he mentally ill? Was he mentally ill when he did this? I mean, to live in that house with a decomposing body. He lived in the house with the decomposing bodies. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like it, that's enough to... He's not pleading insanity. He's not that, using right, the insanity plea. But was he crazy? You have to be crazy to do something like that. Well, again, I mean... Don't you think? Crazy is a legal term and not a psychological term. So, like... he yeah, Is he well. responsible for his actions? Yes. Is he mentally ill to have done something like this? Probably yes. But what kind of mental illness would... I don't know. Somebody have to do something like that. That's just wild. Yeah. So bizarre on so many levels. I just don't understand, you know, having the ability to do something like that in the first place. Three children, the dog, and your wife. The yeah. dog. Couldn't yeah. you just let the dog out and, like, let somebody rescue the poor dog? Like, why the dog, too? I guess that would bring attention to your house, right? Because then if somebody finds the dog. Or take the dog to the pound or something and let the dog live. Pete's sake. <sighs> this guy clearly a piece of work yeah. and he's most certainly going to be convicted i mean i could understand if he had maybe confessed and they threw out one of the confessions but the guy confessed three times three times that's that's a hard case like for the defense attorney you're just uh, you better just hope you don't get the death penalty but yeah. they're not allowed to bring in his mental state and they're not allowed to bring in the conviction or the fraud possible fraud charges, charges so yeah. that's interesting how the, I mean, I think that that will allow a little bit of leeway, but he's still going to get life in prison without parole, period. Yeah. There's just no way around that. Um, second interesting case for the day, and this was an older case. This guy, this happened in the 70s. But I don't know if you've ever heard the okay. story about this guy. This article is the CIA hypnosis and cocaine, why a pilot faked his own death in front of his family in 1977. Nick Shager mm. wrote this. On September 18, 1977, Hazen, Arkansas's Gary Betzner took a daytime drive with his wife and daughter in his El Camino, El Camino, that's like a quintessential 70s car, to a dairy bar. Okay, first of all, what's a dairy bar? <laughs> I would like to know what a dairy bar is. If anybody has information on that, let me know. Anyway, um, maybe that's like an ice cream place or I don't know. Afterwards, he stopped on a bridge due to car trouble, opened the hood to check on the problem, and then suddenly and inexplicably dove into the White River. Can you imagine? Huh. <laughs> You've got car trouble. Your guy pulls over, opens the hood, pretends like he's doing something under the hood, and then just jumps off the bridge. Hmm. This sent his wife Sally into hysterics and cast an immediate and terrible pall over his family, which, like everyone else in their small rural southern town, was plagued by a single persistent question, and that is why. Yeah. For an answer to that query, directors Phil Lott and Ari Mark and executive producer Adam McKay turned to the one person who could best shed light on this seemingly tragic event, Gary himself, who winds up being not only the subject of their three-part HBO docuseries, The Invisible Pilot, which came out on April 4th, but also its primary narrator. So clearly he lived and did an interview for this. But during this time, sitting for an extended chat in the present as well as regular intervals over the past decade via older footage shot by Craig Hodges, a friend of Gary's son Travis, Gary proves a resurrected ghost at the outset of his latest true crime affair. 
The fact that he didn't commit suicide back in 1977, however, is the ol is only the first of many bombshells delivered by Lot and Mark's venue, which begins with a bang before petering out once it trades entertainingly wacko criminality for sober political intrigue. Gary rose to local renown as an ace crop duster with unparalleled piloting skills. Okay, this guy was a crop duster. <laughs> right. Who's a crop duster? In... Well, in the 70s in Arkansas, that would be a that pretty well-paying job. Not a very common career. He was also not a, now. He was also a daredevil who couldn't resist performing flips, flying under bridges, and skimming his craft's tires along the water. Hmm. Sally met Gary in July of 1969, the night of the moon landing, and she describes it as a universe-shaking moment, a notion visualized by Lot and Mark through amusingly edited clips, clips of the astronauts' outer space feet. Gary already had a wife, but once his daughter, Polly, was born, he got a divorce and married Sally, who, with whom he had two more children, Travis and Sara Lee. Sara Lee is like, really? You named your child Sara Lee? It's such a, that double names are such a Southern thing. Oh, yeah. Anyway, he established and then sold the Betzer Flying Service, moving his clan to Alaska for a pipeline opportunity that didn't pan out. With few prospects and even less hmm. cash, Gary turned to another source of income, using his plane to smuggle marijuana. Hmm. Did you hear about yeah. this guy? I've not heard about this guy, but I mean, there's it's a very well-known case that there was um, a former, I think he was a DEA agent, there was also a pilot who was running cocaine for the cartels yeah. in landing in Arkansas. Yeah, maybe Southern this Arkansas. might be him. It's, it's not him. A subsequent bout of painful gout led Gary to take an unlikely cure, cocaine, a narcotic that he admits was used to both alleviate his ailment and for recreational purposes. When he was busted in a giant 1977 Miami drug DEA sting, Gary faced 20 years behind bars, and rather than do that stint, he decided to stage his death and go on the run. To guarantee that his ruse went according to plan, he and Sally took a three-month self-hypnosis self course in order to program Sally into believing the lie that Gary was really dead. Wow, right? What? So they took a hypnosis course so they could program his wife into believing that he was dead by hypnosis. Somehow, this insanity actually worked, and Gary successfully won on the lam, during which time he became a drug-advocating hippie named Lucas Noel Harmony who saw nothing wrong with either consuming or transporting illegal substances. Before long, he was revealing his still-breathing existence to his stunned Travis and Sara Lee in Hawaii, where they lived oh. as nudists. <laughs> so his children live as nudists in Hawaii. Okay. So he eventually found himself employed as a smuggler for George Morales, a Miami speedboat racer who, with deep ties to Pablo Escobar's cartel in Colombia. Yeah. If Morales sounds familiar to true crime aficionados, that's because he was prominently featured in Billy Corbin's Cocaine Cowboys, The Kings of Miami. Yes, that's really good. A similar tale of bold criminals living the high life while evading the law. Yet what begins as a crazy saga about an outlaw flipping the bird to authorities, both figuratively and, more than, and on more than one occasion, literally, soon takes drastic turns once Gary starts flying cocaine for his Colombian bosses and then military cargo for individuals directly linked to the CIA. It's at that point that the invisible pilot becomes not merely a standalone story about defying wrongdoing, but a piece of the Iran-Contra scandal, mm -hmm. since Gary was now transporting guns to the Contras and returning to U.S. shores with kilos of cocaine sought by U.S. government officials. Mm -hmm. A lengthy
lengthy prison sentence and cooperation with John Kerry's subcommittee investigation into Ronald Reagan's Iran-Contra scandal ensued. Although the invisible pilot can't make any of this latter action hum with electricity, despite first-person accounts from Gary, interviews with various other pertinent individuals, and considerable archival footage, the docuseries loses its momentum the more it shifts its gaze from Gary's outrageous conduct to the president's headline-making mess, which I also find kind of boring. Gary gets mostly... You think Iran Contra is boring? I don't think it's that exciting, to oh be my honest gosh. with you. But maybe you do. Maybe I we'll do. have to talk about it on a separate episode. <laughs> Gary gets almost wholly lost in the shuffle for a stretch of the third and fourth episode, and that does much to sabotage the energy of the entire production. Similarly unfulfilled are those passages concerning Travis, Sarah Lee, and Polly, whose mixed-up emotions about their dad, a combination of anger, resentment, and love, never come into sharp focus, no matter how their candid commentary is about the ups and downs of living with a fugitive father. The biggest drawback to the invisible pilot is that no one ever knows how to view Gary. Lot and Mark, which are the filmmakers, are neither interested in revealing his exploits nor in casting a critical eye at his selfish behavior and rebellious ethos. Instead, the proceedings exude a tempered empathy towards him. Mm. Unfortunately, Gary himself does much to frustrate any compassionate consideration of his plight, but with him touting drugs as a means of magical liberation, smuggling a holy thing and a service to mankind, and the murderous Escobar as a legend, and rightly so, I would hope that his praises, not only as a smuggler, but as a human being, would be sung. Far from simply a go-with-the-flow counterculture rabble-rouser who thought everyone would be allowed to smoke some weed, Gary proves a narcissist full of hollow and immoral self-justifications. Thus, by the time Gary gets around to railing against this unjust treatment in the hands of the CIA, who used him for their operation and then left him to rot in jail, any minor wellspring of sympathy has long since run dry. Whereas a shrewder docuseries might have had a more acute point of view about Gary, what emerges, what emerges here is a mixture of astonishment and admiration that comes across as largely unjustified. This guy. Wow. That's a lot. It's, it's a well-written article. I'll give him that. Um, yeah. I have not watched the docuseries, but uh, really? You jump off a bridge. You, you have a whole scandal erupting. You jump off a bridge, pretend you're dead, hypnotize your wife. Your kids are hit, living in a nudist colony. Like, what, what other craziness could happen in yeah, this case? I need them to tie all of that together more. Like, how did he get back in contact with this? That's kids? probably what the documentary tells you. So well, it doesn't sound like it does, is the thing. Go watch The Invisible Pilot and tell us. Right, don't yeah. tell us how I mean, I'm, go- I'm going to watch it because I've seen Cocaine Cowboys and it's really good. It doesn't sound like the critics here are thinking it's anywhere near. That's what I'm saying. Like, it sounds like, the, according to the critics, they, they don't tie it together. They panned it. Yeah. But anyway, interesting story it. nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and then one final case for the day. I'm going to talk about Steve- Stephen Brian Pinnell. Okay. And he was Delaware's only known serial killer. Oh. Which I didn't know that there were any states that didn't have serial killers or they didn't have a lot of them but i guess delaware is a pretty small state though right yeah and i was i was about to say like rhode island but rhode island has a lot of mafia and those aren't like termed serial killers but like that would probably follow the definition in terms of having killed well it wouldn't be because they would be not people in the series it would be more of like performing a job anyway neither here nor there Delaware is a state in the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S., bordering Maryland to its south and west, and Pennsylvania to its north, and New Jersey and the Atlantic Ocean on its east. It takes its name from the nearby Delaware River, and was in turn named after Thomas West, the third Baron de la War, an English nobleman and Virginia's first colonial governor. It is the second smallest and the sixth least 
least populous state, but also the sixth most densely populated, which is interesting for the size, right? The largest city is Wilmington, while the state capital is Dover, the second largest city in the state. It's divided into three counties, having the lowest number of any state, unless one counts Louisiana and Alaska, which do not have counties, but parishes and boroughs. From north to the south, there are Newcastle County, Kent County, and Sussex County. Um, the two southern counties are predominantly agricultural, and Newcastle is urbanized being part of the Delaware Valley Metropolitan Statistical Area centered in Phil on Philadelphia. Delaware's geography, culture, and history combine elements of the Mid-Atlantic Northeastern and Southern regions of the, of the country. Before its coastline was explored by Europeans in the 16th century, Delaware was inhabited by multiple groups of Native Americans, um, and Delaware was one of the 13 colonies that took part in the American Revolution. On December 7, 1787, Delaware became the first state to ratify the Constitution of the United States and has since been known as, quote, the first state. Mm -hmm. Since the turn of the 20th century, Delaware is also a de facto onshore corporate haven in which a and by virtue of its corporate laws, the state is the domicile for over half of all NYSE-listed businesses and mm -hmm. over three-fifths of the Fortune 500. So a lot of people will incorporate their businesses there in that area. Okay. Mm -hmm. huh. Go on to Mr. Stephen Brian Parnell. And this isn't a huge case, but um, it is interesting nonetheless. So, Stephen Brian Parnell was born November 22nd, 1957, in Glasgow, Delaware. Okay. So, he's a Delaware native. There's not a lot of information out there about this guy's past, and he was executed, so it's not like he's written a book and is still alive to kind of give interviews. Yeah. His first victim was 23-year-old Shirley Ann Ellis. She was a nurse, and she, on November 29, 1987, she left the hospital that she worked at in Wilmingham around 6 p.m. She was an AIDS patient caregiver, and she was catching a ride on her way home on Route 40. She disappeared at that point. Her body was later found by the on the roadside by two boys, partially nude with her legs spread out. Hands and feet were tied with adhesive tape. Mm. Interestingly enough, though, there were no signs of sexual assault. She had been seriously abused with her killer tying a string around her neck and hitting her head with a hammer before she was... Jesus. Before she died. So they think that he picked her up? Yes. Okay. He was that person who picked her up from the hospital. The second victim was a 31-year-old divorced sex worker. Her name was Catherine A. DiMauro. And he picked her up on June 28, 1988. This was about seven months after the first time that he murdered that first victim, Shirley mm -hmm. Ellis. And it was around 11.30 p.m. She had been walking down Route 40, and they're not really clear on whether she was actually working as a sex worker at that time, but I think you can presume that, right? Okay. At about 6.25 a.m., local construction workers found her on one of their construction sites. She was naked, and like the first victim, there were no signs of sexual assault. And also like the first victim, she was killed in kind of a gruesome manner with a hammer and then strangulation. Huh. Her body, though, was covered in blue fibers which is kind of strange. Okay. Um, so the special police forces and the FBI get 
involved at that point concluding that there was a serial killer at work on route mm-hmm. 40 so the police and the federal agents then do as they sometimes do in cases like that they dress up as sex workers and go undercover oh yeah hoping to catch somebody there was a task force of over 60 people that were formed in this case to try to capture this guy wow. but none of it worked oh man August 22nd, 1988, um, another sex worker disappears. This time it's 27-year-old Margaret Lynn Finner. And witnesses saw her enter a blue Ford with a white male at the wheel near Route 13. She's found three months later by a hunter near the Chesapeake-Delaware Canal. This time, though, her body was really badly decomposed, so they couldn't really determine the cause of death. Mm Mm-hmm. But there were signs of torture, uh, probably the hammer and the strangulation Mm -hmm. again. She was identified using her dental records. So on September 14, 1988, an undercover police officer acting as a sex worker was out on Route 40 trying to catch this killer. After passing multiple other vehicles, she spotted this blue Ford about seven times in, a, in approximately 20 minutes. Oh, so like he was cruising. Yeah, he was looking for his victims. So she goes on to a more isolated area and the vehicle actually stops next to her. And she sees this white man and sees that he has blue carpet on the floor of his car. Ooh. He looks really nervous and won't look her in the eyes. Still, though, he's attempting to get her to get in the car. Mm-hmm. And t- attempting to hire her as a sex worker. She refuses at that point, saying she's tired. Um, but, interestingly enough, she manages to tear some of the blue carpet from the car. Oh. And writes down license plate number. So, the police then take that license plate number, and they see that it belongs to Stephen Brian Pinnell. He is a 31-year-old electrician, married, and the father of two children. But he, he doesn't have any kind of a criminal record, so they're, like, kind of perplexed at this point how he can be involved uh-huh. in this, and maybe they wrote him off. I, I'm not really sure. But two days later, 22-year-old Michelle Gordon, she was also a sex worker who often went out on Route 40, disappeared as well. Oh, Again, man. this blue Ford, identified as a panel car, is basically at the scene by witnesses. He's put on the scene by witnesses. They find this woman's body in the Chesapeake-Delaware Canal as well on September 20th. The autopsy says that she'd been drugged with cocaine, and this caused her heart to stop before the torture began. So uh, luckily this poor woman, she was probably dead before he started torturing her, but it's just horrific, right? Then on September 23rd, another woman disappears, Kathleen Ann Meyer. And again... This blue Ford on Route 40 was also seen at around 9.30 p.m. They wrote down the license plate number this time, and it turned out to be mm-hmm. Pinnell's car as well. Her body was never found. Okay. Uh. So I think at that point they need to swoop in and grab this guy, right? I mean, they know what yeah. the car is. They know he owns it. This car is seen on all... He's at least... He's on the scene. He's at least somebody they need to talk to because his car has been seen at all of these spots. Exactly. The police then get a search warrant to search this van that Pinnell has at the same time that they arrest him. Okay. So he has this van, the blue van, the blue Ford van, and they start by getting a search warrant, and they find that the vehicle has prints matching the victim and hair and blood. Mm, Yeah. 
They also find adhesive tape that was oh. for, used in one of the killings, and there was a torture kit. Surprise, surprise, right? I guess. You want to know what's in that I mean, kit? no, but I know that... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you want to know, but there were pliers, whips, handcuffs, needles, knives, and restraints, which is pretty tame compared to some of the other torture kits we've talked about on the show. Pinnell was arrested November 1988, and this was approximately a year after he had killed his first victim. At that point, he was charged with killing Ellis, DeMauro, and Gordon. He decides, surprise, surprise, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to remain silent. I'm going to invoke my right to remain silent, which, smart move, right? When the trial started, there was a panel of defense attorneys claiming that the fiber that that officer took from the carpet was illegally obtained mm-hmm. so that it should be thrown out, right? The judge dismissed this claim, saying the yeah. carpet was visible to this woman who was pretending to be the sex worker, I, right. to her eyes as soon as she opened the vehicle. So evidence from these fibers was legal. Once they looked over and examined those fibers, the DNA residues belonging to the victims were also mm. exposed in the fibers of that the van, right? It was the first trial in the United States that used DNA evidence as absolute legal evidence. Interesting. So the judge set a legal precedent in this case and listened to the opinion of expert and scientists who helped verify the DNA evidence. Interesting. Right? I didn't know that. I mean, that's 1980s, late 1980s. One of the first ones, right? He was on the cutting edge. November 23rd, 1989, the jury convicts Pinnell. He is convicted of murdering DeMauro and Ellis, but he's acquitted of Gordon's murder. They hmm. claimed there was a lack of evidence in that case, and that's why they couldn't convict him on that. But he's already been convicted of those two cases. Mm-hmm. And they decide not to recommend the death penalty. Instead, they give him two life sentences. Okay. Creepy, creepy, creepy. Right after this is decided, there's a bouquet of flowers sent to the prosecutor's office with a note reading, You made us feel human again from the women of Route 40. That's, oh, wow. That's super creepy. Um, Pinnell's lawyer appeals, surprise, surprise, again, pointing to that fiber, the car fibers, and saying that they were obtained illegally, therefore it should Uh not have been allowed, but again, it gets dismissed. There's also new evidence that comes to light at this point, and this allows for Pinnell to be convicted of murdering both Gordon and Meyer. Oh. And... Pinnell does a classic maneuver, like so many other weird... Representing himself. Person. Yeah, he decides he's going to represent himself, so he gets rid of his attorney. Wow. And the court says, okay. <laughs> he announces that he wants the death penalty and starts mm-hmm. arguing the entire Constitution began with a verse from the Hebrew Bible. So he starts quoting the Bible and talking about the Hebrew Bible and all that kind of jazz, and he says he deserves the death penalty under the Bible's laws. And he cites a couple of passages from the Bible to explain this and to kind of justify and verify his position, which seems super weird to me. October 31st, 1991, they sentence him to death. Okay. And as with many other places, the Delaware State Constitution says that every single death penalty judgment requires a hearing from the Supreme Court and February 11th, 1992 he appeared before the Supreme Court in the state of Delaware. I guess it's not necessarily that it's required 
to be put before the Supreme Court when you have a death penalty case, but there's a lot of legal kind of review that has to go over any death penalty case before the person can actually be put to death. So he has to go through a review with the Supreme Court right. in the state of Delaware for this. And he demands yeah. at that point that he be allowed to get the death penalty. He was the only defendant in Delaware's legal history to represent himself before the Supreme Court as well. And the only man convicted to willingly seek the death penalty. So, like, he's, he's got a hmm. lot of firsts in this case. He pleaded not guilty of the murders and spoke of the murder in the third person, saying the killer was enjoying the process of the murder, but not the murder itself. And so they started to think maybe he was a little bit cuckoo at that point. Um, the Delaware state attorney objected to the death penalty, but the judges sentenced him to death anyway. His execution was scheduled for March 14, 1992. There were several appeals against this guy's execution, and both were dismissed by the courts. His wife was one of the people that was saying, please, huh. you know, don't let my husband be put to death, which is interesting. She's stuck by his side, right? Right. She got help from the local branch of the American Citizens Association and a law professor. Um, and they argued on in this appeal that Pinnell was insane and didn't understand his actions, didn't understand the gravity of his actions. So they said that this trial should be reopened and that he should get a new trial and he shouldn't be allowed to represent himself. Because, like, he represented himself, he screwed this up, he's crazy, you can't let him do this, you can't put him to death, this is insane. But the, the Supreme Court rejected yeah. that demand. Right before the execution, a bunch of different reporters tried to get interviews with this guy, hoping to get the location of some of the bodies that were still missing, Meyer being the one that they had not found the body for, and he turned it down. Mm -hmm. This guy was very quiet. Didn't Unlike a lot of other serial killers, he didn't do a lot of interviews. He did allow himself to be interviewed by one newspaper with his lawyer. And he didn't give any new information, and he didn't tell anyone where he'd hidden Meyer's body. So March 14th, 1992, at about 9.49 p.m., mm. this guy was executed by lethal injection. He was the first person to be executed in Delaware in about 46 years and the 165th person to be executed in the U.S. since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. What do you think he had for his last meal? This is an interesting little side note. It's Delaware, so... Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like he had crab cakes, clam chowder. But he had crab cakes, steaks, corn on the cob, French fries, bread and butter, and a cola. That sounds pretty doggone good to me right now. <laughs> Everything sounds fabulous, but interesting <laughs> case. I mean, there's not a lot of information out there about this one. I mean, the guy like was mum's the word. Yeah, kept it sealed. Didn't give interviews. Wasn't really into the publicity or the spotlight. And, you know, you got to wonder right. about some of the, the mental reasoning behind killing these women. Since he wasn't really giving it up. And he looks like yeah. such a normal guy when you see the pictures of him. He died at age 34 by lethal injection. And they call him the Route 40 killer, the Corridor killer, or the Route 13 killer. Or his other names that he's known by. And that's a pretty fast turnaround from conviction to execution date. Like, it these is. days it takes decades. And I think it's helpful when the person is like, hey, I, I'm guilty. Sure. Which is interesting, though, because he pleaded not guilty. Well, it sounds like he pleaded not guilty so he could ask for. Because usually if you plead guilty, they take death penalty off the, off the uh, table. Yeah. 
So interesting case. Um, yeah. Not not a lot of info out there, pretty sparse on the the stuff, his past history and his mental state and why he did what he did. But still an interesting case because number one, it's got the DNA component, mm -hmm. and he's also like one of a rare group of individuals. He asked for this. He went in right. front of the Supreme Court and asked to be executed, and just very very interesting. Yeah. But lesser known case and the only serial killer, the only known serial killer that is from Delaware. That's true. There could be others lurking around there we don't know about. Possibly. So anything else you want to add before we wrap the episode up for the day? Nope. Alrighty. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We'll post a couple pictures of this guy on our Instagram account. What is that at, Dars? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So we'll find um, some pictures of this guy as well as the other cases, the, the Florida case and all that good stuff that we'll post too. See if we can rustle up some pics of these three guys yeah. from this case today. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.